All right, you can open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we're nearly finished with this large narrative section that spans a couple of chapters, Matthew 8 and 9, or we've been watching Matthew as he shows us a set of nine miracles Jesus performed. Technically, there are ten total. The last one was like a two-for-one, but across nine different accounts, like a, a string of pearls, Matthew is linking together the miracles of Jesus that we might behold the, the fullness of his identity. And so across these accounts, we've seen Jesus revealed as the Lord, the Son of Man, and the Son of God. These miracles have said much about his true identity. That continues today because in our text, for the first time in Matthew's gospel, he's identified as the Son of David. A very strong, important messianic title. And you put it all together, this is what Matthew wants us to know about Jesus, that he is the divine Messiah. But beyond mere titles, Matthew is showing us the true identity of Jesus through action. Through these miracles, we're, we're seeing the divine authority Jesus wields really over all things. His actions reveal who he is. In Matthew 8 and 9, we've witnessed Jesus display total authority over disease, over disciples, over disaster, over demons, even over death. That includes spiritual death, and last week we saw even physical death. This morning, we're going to witness the eighth miracle in this string, and together with the ninth, next time we see Jesus has total authority over disability. Put it all together in these two chapters, disease, disciples, disaster, demons, death, disability, all things. We see that first in our text this morning as he heals two blind men, Matthew 9, 27 through 31. And thereafter, he heals a mute man who is probably also deaf. We'll save that for next week. But blindness and deafness are just dreadful disabilities. We rely on these two senses the most to interact with the world. I mean, it's hard to imagine life without sight or sound. And it's even harder to imagine life without both. So I've always been personally intrigued by the story of Helen Keller. I'm sure you've heard of her, know her from history. It's, her story is equal parts terrifying and fascinating. She was born in 1880. Keller lost her sight and hearing when she was only 19 months old as a young child. So she grew up in a fog, communicating with just a handful of signs. She lived in a type of mental darkness until the arrival of a woman named Anne Sullivan, who became her, her governess. She was trained to instruct the blind. And Sullivan worked tirelessly to teach her words by tracing letters into her hand. But at age seven, Keller did not even know what words were. I had no concept of language or words. She did not understand that Sullivan was trying to associate objects with these symbols we call words. And so Keller eventually learned to imitate the hand gestures, but they had no meaning to her. They did not mean anything. She later wrote this in her autobiography, quote, I did not know that I was spelling a word or even that words existed. I was simply making my fingers go in, in monkey-like imitation, end quote. But eventually a breakthrough came a month later where Sullivan, her teacher, was using an object lesson to teach her that, that these motions in her hands were representing objects in the real world. And so she ran cool water over her hands while at the same time spelling W-A-T-E-R. And it finally clicked. It connected in Keller's mind that these scribbles were connected to objects. 
And so she later wrote about this moment of awakening, again in her autobiography, quote, I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motions of her fingers. Suddenly I felt a misty consciousness as of something forgotten, a thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. The living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, set it free, end quote. From here, Keller exploded in her understanding of words. She went on to receive formal education and became an accomplished writer. And she was never healed of her blindness or deafness. There was no cure. She died with both at the age of 87 in 1968. But I have to say, just her moment of intellectual awakening is itself, I think, a profound object lesson of salvation. You really just have a perfect picture of, you might say, the enlightenment of salvation. The scripture has always likened those who are lost and dead in their sins to being blind or deaf or even dead. But physically, I mean, they can see and hear, but they have no spiritual vision. They can't see or hear God. The word of God is unintelligible to them. Just like John 1.5 says of Jesus that the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. Spiritual things are foolishness to the natural mind, the natural man. Can't understand it. There are people who can hear and learn all about the facts of Jesus. They can get all the facts of the gospel down. Okay, he died on the cross, was buried, rose from the dead. They have all the right Sunday school answers. They can say these things. They can go through all the Christian motions. But like, like the scribbles on Helen Keller's hands, they, they're devoid of meaning. They don't actually mean anything. There's no true understanding. They're merely parroting information. They're imitating, but without faith. But true salvation is meant to come with an aha moment. It, it is a spiritual awakening where your eyes are open to your, your sin. You realize you have guilt and shame before a holy God. There's nothing you can do about it. But then you also see this Savior who has already done the thing that can save you. You see that he died on that cross for you. It should have been you on that cross, but he died. He rose to eternal life. And now now God accepts you entirely through him. And that's it. With eyes of faith open, you then just run to and wrap your arms around this Christ and you never let go. He becomes not just Lord and Savior, he becomes your Lord, your Savior with conviction, with confidence, with faith. You know, the story of Helen Keller stands out for someone to be completely deaf and blind and to come to such an awakening, like, yeah, I I call it a miracle. But even greater is the miracle of receiving spiritual sight. That is truly impossible. No amount of hard work or learning or effort can ever accomplish that, bring about spiritual vision. It cannot be learned. It is nothing short of life from the dead. That awakening requires divine power and authority. That just so happens to be that the power and authority Jesus comes with. And we get to watch him wield it yet again in our text for this morning as he opens eyes and then later ears and mouths. Here we're going to witness Jesus do the impossible of restoring physical sight to the blind. But he does so to display that he has the authority to do the even more impossible 
He can give spiritual life to the dead, and he can awaken blind eyes to new and true faith. So we aim to behold the power and authority of our Lord yet again in this eighth miracle, all that we might continue to rightly recognize him and respond to him. Basically, what, what Paul prays in Ephesians 1 is what we want. Ephesians 1.18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's what we want. I hope you get that this morning from beholding Christ in his word, Matthew 9, 27 through 31. I'll, I'll read that as we get going. Matthew 9, verse 27. It says, as Jesus went out from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. This passage entirely centers around these two blind men. So we're just going to walk through, trace it, and see Christ through their eyes. Because even though blind, they saw better than most. And so we can start with number one, their condition. Their condition. Back to verse 27. Jesus went out from there. Two blind men followed them, followed him. Matthew's not always chronological, but this appears to pick up from where the previous passage left off. And that would be with the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. That was the first resurrection miracle Jesus performed. And we, we examined that incredible passage last week. It ended on this note, verse 26, that this news spread throughout all that land. I, I mean, are you doing something like raising someone from the dead? Yeah, the word's going to get out. I mean, you're not going to really keep a lid on that. And so now what? Verse 27 seems to follow right after that event. Jesus had gone with Jairus to his home there in Capernaum. And now that, that that deed is done, it's time for him to depart. So off he goes. Verse 27, Jesus went on from there and two blind men followed him. So we're introduced to these two blind men. Don't know their names. They're only known by their condition. They were blind. Now blindness, I guess, relatively was more common in the ancient world. There are some who were born blind due to pregnancy complications. Others became blind in infancy due to disease, like Helen Keller. Then you had accidents, war, and other disease. Needless to say, and especially in the ancient world, the blind were made totally dependent on others. Their survival depended on just the kindness and goodwill of society. But I know, we kind of get the sense that the ancient world was a pretty cold and cruel place. And this probably explains why throughout the Gospels, those who were blind or disabled, lepers, they're often found clumped together. They're not alone, they're together, at least in pairs. It seems that oftentimes the only companions they could find were others who shared their affliction. This was especially the case for the blind because they were shunned. The Jews believed blindness was judgment from God. You or your parents must have done something really bad to deserve this. 
And they were, they were outcasts. So mercy was hard to come by. Most of the blind were reduced to begging. And so these two blind men, they know what it's like to beg. They're not too proud to beg. Unlike the rich, the powerful, they know how to beg. And so here, they're coming to Jesus begging for mercy. So secondly, let's look at their cry. Their cry. I think it's pretty safe to assume they were part of the crowd this day. They couldn't see, but they could hear. And they had to have heard the news that Jesus just raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. I mean, he went in the house. She was dead. He comes out of the house. She's alive. I mean, they, they understood what happened. If these two blind men weren't convinced before that Jesus could heal their blindness, I mean, they're convinced now. And I think it's safe to bet that the raising of Jairus' daughter emboldened them. They seem now determined to be heard and healed by Jesus. And so finishing verse 27, as they followed him, they're crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. So note their request, have mercy on us. And that is the right request. They're not entitled. They know they're, they're unworthy. They're undeserving of favor. They don't demand anything from Jesus. They're just pleading for his undeserved favor. That's, that's mercy. They're casting themselves on his character. They do so, though, confidently because they've become convinced Jesus is merciful and compassionate. To, to cry out, verse 27, means to exclaim, to call aloud. They're shouting, not in anger, but they're shouting so as to be heard. I mean, at, at this point, what do they have to lose? Like, who cares what other people think about you? When you're at this point, when you're desperate, you don't care anymore. They couldn't let this opportunity to encounter Jesus pass by. Like, who knows when they will ever again be within earshot of Jesus walking by. So they have to take this moment. They're crying out loudly, boldly. They're doing so continually cry out. In the Greek, it's a present active participle. It's ongoing action that they're continuing to cry out. That Jesus, and there's a crowd now, they're marching along from Jairus' house to this other house, these blind men are keeping pace, probably with some help, but somehow they're, they're keeping pace. But as Jesus moves along, they're continuing to cry out, have mercy on us. This was a persistent, desperate, loud, bold cry. But it was not rooted in wishful thinking. It was rooted in confidence in the identity of Jesus. We see that in, in third, their confidence their confidence. They have the right request, and they have come to the right person. They seem to know that because they call Jesus son of David, and that is not a trivial title. It's a very significant messianic title. Way back to 2 Samuel 7, God made a series of unilateral promises, covenant promises with King David. David was a man after God's own heart. David wanted to build a house, a temple for the honor of God. But God visited him and said, actually, no, you're not going to build my house. I'm going to build you a house. That included raising up a descendant after him that God might establish his house forever. God said in 2 Samuel 7.13 that this seed or son of David, he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that this threefold 
a threefold promise of a house, a kingdom, a throne. All of these would be established forever through this coming seed or son of David. And David's first son, Solomon, he was not that guy. He was not the son of David. Nor were any others who came later. In fact, in all the centuries to come, none of David's descendants proved to be that perfect forever king who would usher in this everlasting righteousness. And given the failure of Israel's kings, the prophets rose up and to further explain the hope of this coming promised son of David, that he would be God's anointed one. That's later translated into Christ. He would be this Messiah. He would be God's servant. He would be God's righteous branch. As Israel's northern and southern kingdoms came to an end, temples destroyed, they lost the land. I mean, the son of David became their last hope. Each generation longed for this Messiah figure to come, this anointed one. It's the only one at this point who could deliver them and usher in this everlasting kingdom. Now, much more can be said about the messianic expectations of the Jews, and in fact, we will say more later. But suffice it to say that by the time of Jesus, son of David was a well-known title for the Messiah. It was a way of identifying the one who would fulfill all of God's good promises on behalf of his people. If you recall, later during the triumphal entry, as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, the crowds there are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Matthew 21, 9. They were confessing this, this is the Messiah. Now their belief was fickle because later that week, the religious leaders convinced them Jesus is not the Messiah. He cannot be the son of David. He's not the Christ. He's an anti-Christ, a false Christ. And hence, they crucified him. But we look at these two blind men And their belief in Jesus as the son of David is not fickle. It's real, comes from conviction, comes from confidence. And their bold confession in him as the son of David is remarkable. In Matthew's gospel, the very first verse, he's let the cat out of the bag telling us who Jesus is. Matthew 1, verse 1, he tells us at the beginning that this gospel is about Jesus, who is the Christ, the son of David. He's told us, the reader, from the very first verse, who Jesus is. It's no secret to us. But in the earthly ministry of Jesus, this right here is the first time he's being recognized as the son of David by a human character. And just think, of all people to see him for who he really is, it's a couple of blind men. That irony should not be lost on you. I mean, talk about believing without seeing. They, they could not see any of the signs Jesus performed, healing the leper, the centurion's servant, raising Jairus' daughter. They couldn't actually see any of this. They just heard it, heard about it. But that was enough. They only heard the testimony, but to them, like, well, this is pretty obvious. Jesus is the Christ. Now, this is just verse 27, but it's really setting up the scene, painting the picture of Jesus leaving Jairus' house. A crowd presumably follows him. It's got to be noisy, but they're shouting above the noise, continually, have mercy on us, son of David. Over and over, they keep shouting. Everybody can hear them, ignoring them, probably shunning them. Jesus can hear them. And so now you wonder, like, how is Jesus going to respond? What's he going to do? He hears them. They don't stop. How's he going to respond? 
And I can probably safely bet it's not what you expect because Jesus totally ignores them. He fully ignores them. At first, at least. Yet they persist. This leads to number four, their constancy. And yes, that is a word, by the way. Their constancy. Starting in verse 28, it says, when he entered the house. It just jumps right there. They're, they're crying out on the road, but when he entered the house. It says the house has a definite article before it. This is the house. We're not told which house this is, but it's not a random house. This is a house Jesus knew, likely, where he was staying. Can't be dogmatic, but going back to Matthew 8, 14, which was Peter's house, it's most likely where Jesus resided when he was in Capernaum, staying at, at Peter's residence there in town. But what this means, though, is that during this whole journey from Jairus' house to this house, Jesus totally ignored these two blind men. They're, they're crying out the whole time. He does not stop, does not talk to them, does not acknowledge them, just seems to ignore them all the way to the house. And keep in mind, meanwhile, we learned last week there was this woman who had a bleeding condition for 12 years, and she did not cry out. Her tactic was to come up in secret behind Jesus while he was walking to Jairus' house, and in secret, she hoped to just touch the edge of his garment, believing that she would be healed. And she did, and she was. But when that happened, Jesus just felt the power grow out of him. He immediately stops in his tracks, turns around, and addresses her. He calls her out of the crowd. She did not want to be noticed. She did not say anything, but he stops everything to address her. Now you have these two blind men. They're doing the opposite. They're shouting loudly. They're doing everything they can to be noticed. But Jesus, it's like he can't be bothered. He does not stop. He does not acknowledge them. does not turn. Nothing. Makes us wonder, like, why would he do this? Was he testing their faith? Was he, was he ignoring them on purpose to see how persistent they would be? It's possible. I think there's a better explanation. We're going to come back to it shortly. For now, though, I just want you to see how, how these two blind men were persistent. They were constant in their desire to encounter Jesus. They followed Jesus all the way to his house, or whatever house this is. <clears throat> but all the while, they kept confessing him and pleading for mercy. They would not be turned away, for they did have faith, and Jesus was not going to ignore them forever. And so we have number five, their confession. Verse 28, their confession. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. So of Jesus entering this house, was he alone? Did, did the crowds enter with him for more teaching that day? We don't know. But either way, these two blind men, they barge in. They, they are not going to be turned away. They're determined to be heard. They finally get Jesus cornered. They're going to be heard. And now whether they ask the question directly or Jesus is inferring the obvious, it is obvious they're coming to Jesus to regain their sight. He knows that. And so in response, Jesus tests them one more time with this question. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And it, it seems like a strange question because, like, isn't this already kind of obvious? Like, yes, they, they've been following Jesus since Jairus' house. 
They've been shouting continually, have mercy on us. They've been confessing him as the son of David this whole time. And even though Jesus didn't respond to them, they kept it up. They persisted. And now here they are. They're in the house. They're still asking like, well, of course they believe he can do this. But here is where Jesus is trying to draw out their faith, their full faith, to bring it all to the surface. Their response is immediate and decisive, no doubt. Like, yes, Lord, yes. Yes, they do believe. Yes, they have faith. Let it be stated for the public record, they believe he can do this. They call Jesus Lord. This could be the simple honorary use of the term. Uh, just It means nothing more than yes, sir. But given the context, I think it's more likely the imperial use that they recognize Jesus as Lord of Lords. What are they believing at this point regarding their healing? They, they believe Jesus is willing, that they're banking on his mercy and compassion. They believe he's able. They're banking on his power, even that power that can raise the dead. They, they believe he can do this. And they're, they're really trusting that he is Lord and Messiah. He is their Messiah who came to rescue his people from all ills. Their faith is not perfectly informed, but it's real. It's strong. And the good news is Jesus is willing and he is able. And they have found the Messiah and the Lord. And so they will receive mercy. Number six, their cure. Verse 29, beginning verse 30, their cure. It says, then he touched their eyes, saying, it shall be done to you according to your faith. And, verse 30, their eyes were opened. We've seen all throughout chapters 8 and 9, sometimes Jesus can heal with a touch, like the leper. Other times he can heal with just a word, like the centurion's servant. But his power was within himself. And so, with the same power by which he created eyes and the ability to see, he can easily restore that ability that has been lost to the plagues of a fallen world. And so this time with, with just a touch, they re, their eyes were opened. They regained perfect sight. And uh, it's, it's just hard to imagine what this would have been like, but you need to try just to, to think what this would have been like. We, we can't really, but just every moment of every day is darkness. You want to open your eyes. You know what it's like to see and to lose that. There's always darkness. You wake up. There's no opening your eyes to greet the world. It's just like it's still night. It's just darkness. You feel the heat of the sun, but never its light. You live in constant dependent on others. Just what would this be like? But with the touch, just they feel this touch, and he opens their eyes. Every time they blinked, they still blinked. You know, every time they blinked, Nothing, just more darkness. But this one time they blink, when they open their eyes, just light floods in. Just colors and depth, dimension, peoples, places, objects. Now everything has a shape. You know, today, I don't know if you've seen this, but they have these special glasses that, uh, that can restore uh, color to those who are colorblind. They can color correct and help them see in true, full color. And there's some videos of people putting on these glasses, and they're, they're blown away. They're moved. They're emotional. They're overwhelmed. And that's understandable. Just they can see in, in full color for the first time. That's just like the smallest fraction of what this would have been like to go from blindness to vision. And so we get this. this we, we get why curing the blind is a big deal. 
Look, we all legitimately fear blindness. But just to hear of the blind receiving sight by the compassionate touch of the Savior is, is moving. And when Jesus touches them, however, he says something to them. And I want to dwell on this for a little bit. We'll call this number seven, their conduit. And I'll explain that. But number seven, their, their conduit. In this healing, Jesus essentially says to them what he said to the centurion back in chapter 8. It shall be done to you according to your faith. He's not saying their level of healing corresponds to their level of faith. Like, hey, you guys really believe I'm going to give you 20-20 vision. If you only had little faith, you might get 20-50 vision. That's not what he means. Now, their, their faith is not meriting or earning their healing. Rather, their faith is merely the means by which they receive God's free mercy. So you might say it's it's the conduit by which we access God's free favor. Faith is a conduit. Now, look, we've already spent a lot of time in these two chapters exploring the relationship between faith and healing, and then healing and the atonement. We're not going to rehash all that, but I would maybe encourage you to listen again to the Matthew 8:17 sermon titled Healing and the Atonement. Kind of goes over it. But in short, we can say again that faith was not always required for Jesus to heal someone or to deliver them. The Gerasene demoniac had no faith. The 10 lepers of Luke 17 had no faith. The very next passage in Matthew 9, there's a mute demon-possessed man, and he's healed totally irrespective of his faith. And sometimes Jesus, well, he always healed by his sovereign will, but sometimes he was moved to compassion upon seeing human suffering, and he gave physical deliverance, irrespective of faith, just a token of his common grace, mercy, and love toward the suffering. That said, there were plenty of times when Jesus saw human suffering, yet it came from people who did believe in him. These were men and women who had faith, and in such cases, their faith was sure to elicit a compassionate response from him. God is the supplier of all of our needs. Faith is the means by which we access his provision. It's like it's raining outside and we're dying of thirst. Faith is just holding out a cup. We're not earning anything, right? We're just receiving what has been given. And this is how we received what God has has already promised and given in Christ. Now we know we we have physical needs, we have spiritual needs. Jesus came for them both. He came to redeem us, body and soul, but we've learned that our spiritual problem is more fundamental. It's our spiritual death which brings about our physical death. All the ailments of our body come as consequences of our spiritual condition and the fall. Jesus, however, he brings us hope for everything wrong with our bodies, and we know that hope is not healing. That hope is resurrection. That's when everything wrong with your bodies will be fixed forevermore. He promises to raise us from the grave, not to heal your every ailment in this life, but to raise you to new life. But every time Jesus healed, he gave a foretaste of that power and that future provision. However, we will never see that resurrection to eternal life if we remain dead in our sins. And that's why Jesus came first and foremost to make atonement for our sins. That we might be reconciled to God. We receive that ultimate uh, 
provision by faith in him. God has supplied it. It's like he's caused it to rain living water outside. We're dying of thirst. By grace, our eyes are open to our need, to his provision. And so by faith, we respond, holding out a cup, receiving what he has given, this conduit. I believe this explains why Jesus often seeks to draw out the faith of those whom he heals. Faith sometimes leads people to his provision of physical healing. Yes, that's true, sometimes. But I think Jesus and the gospel writers want us to know even more that that faith always leads to receiving his provision of, of spiritual salvation, his spiritual healing. In fact, faith is the only way that you too must become convinced that this Jesus is Lord and Savior, God and Messiah. You too must openly confess him, pleading for mercy, and all those who do so will receive. He turns away no one who comes to his narrow gate by faith in him. I think the fact that Jesus, he didn't just heal these men, but he drew out their faith, he solicited their confession, then he told them it shall be done to you according to your faith. The signals, the, the main takeaway here, that we, we had better go to Jesus the same way, that we might receive what we need, and it's not just eyesight, we need spiritual vision, an enlightening of our hearts, you might say. It's not a coincidence that the blind receiving sight becomes this kind of archetypal metaphor in Scripture for salvation. Maybe only surpassed by the raising of the dead, but the blind receiving sight, it's just the perfect picture of our condition, our need, and what Jesus can do for us spiritually, all by grace through faith. This is actually something Jesus himself taught and affirmed in John chapter 9. So really quick, keep your thumbnail in Matthew 9, but go to John 9. Uh, To see this, John chapter 9. John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind, and it just dumbfounded the onlookers. But it happened on a Sabbath, so the Pharisees were outraged. They, They couldn't refute it, but they also refused to believe it. So, they interviewed this man to ascertain the truth, like what really happened. We're not going to have time to read this whole chapter. But as it plays out, this blind man now has like perfect spiritual vision. He, his eyes of faith are open. He sees Jesus for exactly who he is. And meanwhile, the Pharisees, I mean, they're totally seeing, but also totally blind to all spiritual truth. They get fed up. They eventually do the equivalent of excommunicating this man. But Jesus then later finds him and asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Okay, the, the one standing in front of you. And so let's look at the man's response. This is John 9, 38, 38 through 41. Verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And then Jesus said, verse 39, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see. And that those who see may become blind. Verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. 
I hope it's clear to you, he's no longer talking about physical sight or blindness, but spiritual. And so the spiritually proud, the arrogant, the self-righteous, I mean, they think they see everything clearly. But Christ says, no, actually, you're, you're blind. And their sin remains because they refuse to look upon Christ as Lord and Savior. But the meek and the humble, repentant sinner, those who know that they're lost, they're dead, they're blind, but they look upon Jesus as Lord and Savior. Their, their eyes are open. They're given sight. And he says, they have no sin. Their sins are taken away. This, that is the only way. And that's what this is really all about. That, that is the lesson to learn primarily. Like, will you see your sins? Have you seen truly your own sinful condition before God? Recognizing that spiritually you're lost, you're dead, you're blind. You have to come to the end of yourself, your resources to solve this spiritual problem. But with eyes of faith, you see God's provision for you in Christ. This is why this son of David came to earth in the first place to pay for, for your sins. He, he ascended that cross, dying in your place to pay your penalty and ro- rose from the dead for you, for your sins. You, you have to see how he and his work is your only hope. And when you put this together, your need, his provision, the only way, then what do you do? What must I do to be saved? Nothing you can do except go to him crying out, just have mercy on me, son of David. You're not entitled to this. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it, nor do I. You're just pleading for mercy. Just have mercy on me. And we do not control his mercy, but the good news is he promises, by his promise, to always hear that cry of faith. And so I I just pray that is your response to Jesus today. Like This is why this Jesus, the son of David, came that those sitting in darkness might see a great light and just see and believe and be saved. And so I would pray you don't leave here this morning without calling upon him in your heart as your Lord, Savior, Messiah, to open the eyes of your heart. Now, since you're in John 9 already, when this blind man was testifying before the Pharisees, he makes this one statement to support Jesus as the Messiah, but it's very interesting and telling. Back in verse 32, he says to them, Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. You may not be, and that's a true statement. You may not be aware of this, but you know, there's not a single instance of the blind receiving sight in the Old Testament. It's never been done before. Miracles in the Old Testament, actually few and far between, but among Moses, Elijah, Elisha, they never once cured blindness. And you might think like, but what's the big deal? Elijah, Elisha, they both raised a child from the dead. Isn't that, isn't that a greater miracle? It is, but there's just something in the Jewish, I don't know if you want to call it, psyche that, that made them think giving sight to the blind was like a huge deal. That probably has to do with the fact that several messianic prophecies stated that when the Messiah comes, this is like his, one of his major calling cards. He will give sight to the blind. For example, Isaiah 35, 5-6 says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. 
We're going to study that passage later. It's a passage Jesus quotes in reference to himself later in Matthew chapter 11. So we'll get to it. But suffice it to say that this man in John chapter 9 and the Jews at large, they understood like when the Messiah comes, this, this will be one of his top signs. Among others, he will give sight to the blind. Like literally, give sight to the blind. And especially since this never happened before, like you'll know it when you see it. It's kind of obvious. And so now, here along comes Jesus. And what does he do, among other things? What does he do? He gives sight to the blind. And so what do you think that says about him? In fact, of all the miracles that the gospel writers record, which, which category of miracle do you think they record the most? Giving sight to the blind. That's because this was viewed just as a distinct proof of the Messiah. It crowns all of his healings, just the sign that he was the son of David. It's, just, it's right there. And we know many proved too blind to see it. And he even rejected him. That's already starting to happen. There's more to this. We'll, we'll see more later in Matthew's gospel. For now, I trust you get it. Like Jesus opening the eyes of the blind is meant to be a, a big proof. He really is this son of David that we learned way back in chapter 1, verse 1. That this is who he is. He is this long-awaited Messiah. And all that means. And once you understand that, though, what, what happens next is a huge curveball. Go back to Matthew 9. This would be number 8. Back to the blind men. uh, Their caution. Their caution. Back to Matthew 9, verse 30. It's so unexpected. Verse 30, it says, And their eyes were opened. Then it says, And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. See, you you probably think at uh, first hand, like, what? Why on earth would he say that? Like, why, why wouldn't you be saying the opposite? When you have two blind men, and they've got better spiritual vision than anyone else, they, they never saw a single sign of Jesus with their eyes, but they heard about them. And just by faith, they put two and two together. Like, hey, isn't it obvious? This Jesus, he's clearly the son of David. He's doing what the Messiah is supposed to do. It's like, we better follow him. They did. They believed. They received healing. Amen. And so you would think that after this, Jesus would then, would then like tell them, like, you know what, guys, you figured it out. I am the Messiah. Now go tell everybody. Go, go tell everyone, son of David has come. But no, it's the opposite. He says, see that no one knows about this. And Matthew adds, Jesus sternly warned them. It's very strong language. It's not making a suggestion. This speaks of a scolding. It's a command that's almost a threat. Like, you, you better not tell anyone. And so we just wonder, like, what, what is going on? He opens their eyes and then immediately shuts their mouths. Why would he do this? Well, this actually happens a lot in Christ's ministry. It's one of the sub-themes of Mark's gospel. He's always showing Jesus healing and then telling people, don't tell anybody. It's like over and over again in Mark's gospel, and they usually don't listen. But there is a good reason for this. Look, of course, after the resurrection of Jesus, the mission, the great commission of all disciples becomes the opposite. Like there's no more room for silence or secrecy after the resurrection. It's very clear, like, okay, now, now go tell all the nations. Jesus is the Messiah. He died. He rose again. Believe. Be saved. So that's very clear. After the resurrection, there's no doubt about that. 
And this explains why after Pentecost, Peter, during his first sermon, he like loudly and boldly preached Jesus, you know, the one you just crucified, he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of David. He makes that clear in Acts 2. But that is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. What would be the problem with that level of open publicity or acknowledgement before Christ's death and resurrection? The problem was that the Jews had many incorrect beliefs and misconceptions of the role of the Messiah. They misunderstood the Messiah. And they failed to grasp from their own scriptures the true mission of the Messiah. That whole like suffering servant deal was just lost on them. They were instead expecting purely physical deliverance. They believed Messiah would be a conquering king who would come and overthrow the Roman Empire and restore Jewish prominence among the nations. And so they were looking for just a purely political ruler. This is why after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowds, it said, actually believed Jesus was the Messiah. John 6, 14 through 15, it says, they came, they tried to take him by force and make him king. But it says Jesus withdrew from them. You think, be like, all right, my time has come. Let's do this. But no, he, he basically runs away from them. Because they did not realize that the Messiah first had to die. He had to be first this suffering servant. But they were just looking for one who could give them what they wanted. And he's like, that's not why I came. And he pulls back from them. It is not that Jesus is trying to keep the wraps on his miraculous power. He's already done countless healings in front of multitudes of people. Like thousands have witnessed his power. So it's not that. You know, obviously everyone would eventually figure out these two blind men now can see and they were in the house with Jesus. Like obviously people would know that he healed these blind men. But just being such a powerful messianic sign, he did not want them going around publicizing it. He did not want them openly declaring him to be the son of David before the time. And by the way, going back to the note, this is why I think he ignored them on the road. Because they're coming after him, confessing openly, you are the son of David. If he stopped and healed them right then and there, he's, he's acknowledging that fact. Too much publicity that he really is the son of David. Just boiling it down, revealing his full identity before the time came would come with two unintended consequences. One, it would lead the people to champion Jesus. They would come and try and make him king, starting a revolutionary movement. That's not what he wanted. They just could not understand Messiah until his death and resurrection. And then two, it would lead the religious leaders to come after Jesus, killing him before the time. It would accelerate his date with the cross. They crucified him when he finally openly said, yeah, I am the son of God. That's why they killed him. And he couldn't have that either. Jesus had his own timetable for revealing the fullness of his divine identity to his disciples, to the crowds. That's something we actually watch unfold more and more. Culminating in Matthew 16 with the Peter's confession. But it unfolds all the way up until the cross on purpose. And so for now, you have these two blind men. And they're blind no more, but they're cautioned for a reason not to tell. But not surprisingly, they don't listen. It does not go that way. And so we have number nine. This is the last one, their conclusion. We'll finish here. Their conclusion. Verse 31 says, But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. So they did the exact opposite. 
don't know, if you ever told your kids to do something while they're in an excited state, like maybe it's their birthday and they're opening up presents and they're just kind of like rabid with excitement, then you might tell them like, hey, let's, let's slow down or like, hey, make sure to say thank you. Or afterward, maybe they're playing with their new toy and like, you know, let's have a little cleanup time. And just, I don't know, sometimes they're just way too excited. And what you say, like, they don't hear, it just doesn't register. And so it's, it's not like they're being stiff-necked in rebellion. They're just, they're caught up in the moment. It does not make their disobedience okay, but you'd say it makes it more understandable. And I think that's the impression we get with these blind men. I mean, you've got to think, they're taking in the moment. They're seeing millions of new colors and sights that they've never seen before. They're, they're probably trying to figure out what everything is, like, this is a chair. This is what a chair looks like. We've, meanwhile, Jesus is trying to get their attention. Like, now don't tell anyone about this. And they're like, well, whatever you say, Jesus, sure. And they're probably overwhelmed. And so off they go, though. And when they leave, they immediately get all this attention because everyone knew they're blind. They come out of this house. They can see. So, of course, they're getting attention. People ask what happened. And they, they can't help it. They just spread the news. Now, technically, they, they disobeyed the Lord. And even here, we can't excuse that. That is never okay. But if there was ever a case where it was, I guess, understandable, this would probably be it. I mean, just, I wonder how well you could keep that good news a secret. But notably, the last account ended the same way. After Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, Mark tells us that Jesus told the parents, uh, he sternly warned them, don't tell anyone. Same thing, sternly warned them. Don't spread this news. But as we learned back in verse 26 of Matthew, uh, that news spread all throughout the land. So it didn't work. And it's the same with these two blind men. Jesus sternly warns them, don't tell anyone what happens. Verse 31, they went out and spread that news about him throughout all that land. It's almost the exact same wording. But this, of course, goes on to explain the growing fame of Jesus in those days. Like when he's doing things like this, he's raising the dead, giving sight to the blind. I mean, that news is going to get spread, even against his wishes at times. But part of me wonders if the gospel writers included these notes to challenge us when it comes to our response to the good news of Jesus. Because we know that the only reason it was wrong for them to spread the news was in this moment, it was against his wishes. In a specific time of Revelation history, it was against his wishes. But you know that that is now no longer the case. Even when Matthew is writing this, that's no longer the case. Now it's, it is the exact opposite. Go tell it on a mountain. We get that. So what should we do now? What should be our final response after we have encountered Jesus by faith? We've gained the greater miracle of life from the dead, of sight from spiritual blindness. How do we respond I know it's redundant from last week, but it's a fitting last word, and it's the last word of the text. It's time for us to, on purpose, spread that news all throughout that land. And so who do you know who is still blind and lost? And have you ever told them what great things the Lord has done for you? What what relatives, friends, neighbors need to hear? Who needs this testimony? And why do you keep delaying? At church, recently, we started some door-to-door outreach. Well, what keeps you away? What holds you back? And Christians should not need to be convinced or compelled to share good news. No arm twisting should be required to share joy and excitement. Now, I know why that is, though. We all know it's because of fear. 
we, we would share this good news more freely if we, didn't, uh, we weren't afraid we'd get attacked or rejected or persecuted when we tell them good news. Still, though, the blind need to hear, and we are called to tell them. And so courage is needed. Boldness is needed. Jesus knows that, which is why very shortly he's going to preach to embolden his disciples and us. That is actually what the entire chapter of Matthew 10 is all about. And we hope to receive that emboldening message very soon. For now, though, I think we just need to take to heart how this, this chapter ends, how Matthew 9 ends, how all of these healings have been building up to this response. Because we are those who have received the greater miracle, the greater sight from spiritual blindness to new uh, sight. And so this is now what we must do. Look at Matthew 9, 37, 38, the end of the chapter. Through all these miracles, he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And so let us be praying, and then let us, uh, let us be those workers who go out faithfully and courageously into his harvest to tell others the Lord has opened our eyes and how he can do that for them as well. And let's pray that resolve together. Our great God in heaven, that is our heart's resolve this morning after hearing your word, being convicted by the spirit of, of the majesty of Christ. We do want to resolve to let the nations be glad. Let them hear from our lips uh, what is true. This world sits in darkness as we all once did. And that we have come to know Christ, our eyes have been opened. It says nothing of us. We don't boast. We are no better. We were just as lost and blind and dead in our sins. And purely by your mercy and grace, you reached down, opened our eyes, showed us the Savior, the provision you've already made of forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption into your family. And when we responded in faith, that even that is to your glory as you drew us to yourself. Still, we, we now want to testify. Our, our own hearts are encouraged by this Savior who all this is true. We, our confidence is in him. And, and deepen that confidence. And also inspire us to not, not keep quiet any longer. That The secret is out and should be. It's the only hope for this world. We all know we're living in a culture that is feeling darker and darker in depravity. Yet your, your light can pierce the deepest darkness and make people alive and change them radically overnight. So do that. Even for any here this morning who, who don't know you and are curious though, are seeking, just open their eyes all the way that they would behold what is true in the Savior who has come to give life and light to the world. Draw all to yourself, Lord, we pray. And use us as instruments in your hands. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.